Here we go, guys. We are uh, back with another uh, podcast, true podcast episode. We haven't done this uh, in a while. We've done a lot of recaps and a lot of chess analysis, but we haven't done a uh, typical podcast in a very long time. Glad to be back on that train, Fabi. It's been a couple of days since your victory at Superbet. Big event, uh, big victory. You haven't won, actually, in international event uh in super event in a very long time um i think uh there were some statistics that i think the last one was 2019 obviously you won the u.s championship and a few others but a classical international event victory must feel pretty sweet yeah i, I won tata steel in 2020 but since then it's it's a little bit of a very narrow criteria but yeah i haven't won a tournament with players from different countries in classical chess since 2020, uh, January 2020. Um, but yeah, it, it's de it's definitely very, very important. And also, it's not an individual tournament, which is why I was quite motivated as well, because it's part of the tour. Two tours, in fact. Well, one is the Grand Chess Tour. And I, I, I really hope to do well in the Grand Chess Tour. Um, I haven't... Like there's some players who who usually do very very well, like Wesley for example, but I haven't always done well. I think I did pretty well in 2018, but besides that, I don't remember a good year for me in the Grand Chess Tour. I don't think you ever won it, right? No, no, I never won it, but I also only once got third place, and I never got second place. So, so yeah, I'm hoping this year to do better, and this is a good start for it. And uh, the other tour is the FIDE Circuit, which is just a general tour of all tournaments. And this puts me in a better position than I was in. It's it's a bit right now. It's a bit too early to say because um, we're still not even halfway through the year, and uh, we have a leaderboard. But I but most players haven't played many events, and the events that they have played, I uh, I don't think that they've played their best events yet. So the only two events I think that we can say that are definitely going to be the best events that. Uh, that individual players have had is Anish winning Vikenze. That's going to be um, probably like his top win or or among his top wins this year. And for me, the super bet is going to be either my top win or among my top wins in terms of the points it gives. So for uh, so, anybody that actually doesn't know what we're talking about, um, that uh, circuit, the Grand Prix circuit, is another way to qualify for the candidates. I think they give uh, one or two spots. Is that correct? I think it's only one spot. Let me make Just sure. One spot, right? Um, one player. Yeah, one player. Okay, so one that's player another way to qualify. This is on the FIDE website. Who would achieve the highest results during 2023 in eligible tournaments gets a spot in the FIDE candidates. Yeah. Each player has to play in a minimum of five eligible tournaments, including at least four with a standard time control. The final score is calculated as a sum of the player's five highest scores. So if I play five events, and I, I will, that are eligible for this, then those events will be included, or at least if I play more than my five best events will be included. And currently I've played two events that are eligible. Uh, one is the GCT and one is the Tata Steel Masters. And the um, the American Cup, for example, is not included because it's all American players, yeah. no other federations. And that criteria makes it ineligible, but it would be waived for a national championship. So for example, the US championship will, will be an illegible event and i will play that one in, as well as uh probably wesley 
uh, Levon and other players who, who are competing for this. I don't think Hikaru will play, but I'm not 100% sure on that. From uh, my understanding, he's not, but of course, uh, it's up to him to um, confirm that or say that he will play later on. I think he's still kind of keeping his cards next to his chest. But uh, yeah, he's not expected, or at least we don't think he will play. That one is going but to Hikaru be is interesting. Hikaru is an interesting case in terms of this FIDE circuit because so far he hasn't played any legible events. Obviously, the American Cup, which he played, is not legible, and online events are not legible. So he'll play Norway chess. That one counts. And he has you to play. He's five. going to play the Grand Swiss. But, but the Grand Swiss, I'm like, okay, it's part of a different qualification. So either he qual, like, if he doesn't do well, then that won't really count. And and if he qualifies through that, then it also doesn't count for the tour. So. Uh, I'm not sure that that one, and even if he does that, that's still two events. U.S. Championship, if he doesn't play, but even if he plays, it's three. He's still missing a bunch. Like he, he'll play maybe some rapid and blitz events over the board. I'm not sure if he, if he's even trying to make the circuit. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's only one way to qualify for the Candice. You have the World Cup. You have one rating spot, which most likely is going to be uh, Magnus, but. We don't expect him to play either. Um, I think he uh, put it at about 1% or even less than 1% chance that he will come back to, for the candidates, especially not this year. Yeah, like he just abdicated. It makes absolutely no sense. Like give it a couple of years, get some rest, get some motivation back, and then maybe consider coming back on the candidates. But I have a feeling that unless FIDE changes the system, um, which seems to be what Magnus wants, that's not going to happen. So yeah, speaking yeah. of that, we have a new world champion. I don't think we discussed it um, at length. Uh, Ding Li Ren um, won, obviously, if you have been watching the recaps, you probably know, won the world championship. Jan, um, second, well, he failed to, 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 to get the crown this time. And uh, they both played in Superbet in Romania. You've met both of them. What is your initial impression? I mean, obviously... Uh, there was a lot of discussion about them being pre-tired after the World Championship match, and it, it kind of makes a lot of sense. Um, do you have a different perspective on that? Well, I I do, uh, and it's based on personal experience, so I, I say take it with a grain of salt, because obviously what happened to me in, in some isolated tournaments isn't necessarily the norm, and... Certainly when I saw Ding, two things struck me. One was that he he does look low energy. Um, and he also doesn't look happy. But that's kind and of his de facto look, right? Like he never shows too much emotion. Even when he's, you know, when he's happy, I guess he doesn't show that much emotion when he's sad. Like we've seen him at Tata Steel. Obviously he had a miserable tournament there. And he more or less had the same figure. Um at least from what I've yeah. seen during the World Championship match, he basically had the same the same look on his face all the time. Like it's very difficult, at least for me, to read his mental state. Yeah, I, I can't say either. I, I might be misreading a lot, but he didn't look happy to me. Uh, and it could be that he just generally um, maybe doesn't show like great elation. Um, it could be just reserved nature that he has, but. 
he actually looked unhappy to me. Like he, yep. he actually looked unhappy. It's not that he looked neutral. And in terms of Jan, it's also interesting because he had, like they both had poor tournaments, but Jan had a poorer one because in the last round, Jan drew and Ding won. And yep. in fact, they both should have won. Jan was winning. He was objectively winning. He was winning a piece or checkmating Anish uh, with a, a two-move sequence, basically. Uh, queen G3, followed by Queen F4. Um, we can this would take a look at uh, that if you want. But yeah, keep going. Keep telling Yeah, it's, it's not really... The position isn't so important. It's not like it was absolutely trivial and after a long game it could be missed, but he was winning. Like, the game was in the back room. And it wasn't even... It wasn't like a long process. If he had found those two moves, then, then that would be the end of the game. There would have been no resistance that Anish could have put up. And so I have to say, Anish was, actually was really ready in to front get of me. Um, which one? At um, what point? Oh, let me get you the move number. I, I don't have the game in front of me, but I just remember uh, that he put his knight on G3. Was it that move second. 48 when he played knight G3, right? That sounds about right, yeah. Yeah, and how was he winning? There was queen g3. Let me get the position up as well, so uh, so that I don't mess this up. So this is last round, Anish with white against uh, Nepo. Anish needed a victory to be able to uh, most likely catch up with you. In fact, actually, he needed the victory if he wanted to at least tie for first because you were playing one of the um, chasers. You were playing Richie Rafael. Yeah. So if he, he would have beaten you, then he would be... Anish would need a win anyway. He needed a victory to potentially tie for first. Um, took some risks. Yeah, so basically, after knight d2, queen c5. Yes. He, uh, he played knight g3 and it allowed the queen to come to g1 and yeah. black no longer had winning chances. If he had played queen g3, king h1, queen f4, this is not like super obvious that it's winning, but it is winning. And uh, the reason why is the threat is knight g3, and if the king goes to h2, it will run into forks like knight takes e4 or picking up the knight with knight f5, etc. Mm -hmm. And if the king goes to g1, then queen d2 will mate along the back rank. Mm. And white, if the knight was somewhere besides d6, white would be able to potentially hold this. But for example, white plays knight to b5, knight g3, King g1, queen d2, and now if king h2, knight to f1 followed by knight to e3. So if white could cover that e3 square with the knight, it would, it would hold. But yeah, this was winning. Uh, yeah. He missed it and, and he drew the game, which I'm sure was like the, the final bit of disappointment in a very disappointing tournament for him. Yeah. And what can we say? He, he, uh, he started well. I mean, he beat Dayak with black. He was actually in the third round winning, pretty much winning, or very close to it against Ding with the white pieces. I mean, he could have started with two and a half out of three. Looked like good preparation, you know, good good form, uh, powerful play that we sometimes see from Jan, where he, he just starts to collect win after win. Uh, he would have been 2,800 having beaten Ding. He would, uh, I mean, he still wouldn't be the world champion, unfortunately, like that, 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 Little saga is over for him, but uh, at least for, for this year. But uh, he would have also, let's say, gotten a moral victory by beating Ding and saying, "Okay, you might have won the rapid tiebreak, but uh, but that doesn't mean you're the better player." And instead, he drew that game. He missed the win. Then against me 
in a completely dead equal position. He lost concentration, it felt like, and he drifted into a loss. Then against Maxime was yeah, that his was the worst game. Was 94, yeah, I think. Despite the fact that the engine was saying that the position was still more or less okay, uh, I think that move was just absolutely horrendous. 94 was the beginning. Sometimes you can talk about when a game is lost. And of course, the game is only lost when it's the final mistake. But there's there's always a precursor. And 94 was the first moment that he, he started to drift into difficulties and that eventually culminated in a loss. And, and his next game against Maxime was his worst game in the tournament. Um, he was much better. He had more time. Everything was going in his favor. He, he had Maxime pretty much on the ropes. And he drifted terribly. And after that, it was just all downhill. Um, he could have, I think, if he had won that last game against Anish, recovered a little bit of uh, like a good feeling. Not, I mean, still wouldn't be a good tournament, but some good emotions for the tournament. But overall, I think he just wants to forget about this one. Yeah, yeah, and uh, he was also unable to to attend the closing ceremony because he had an early flight immediately after the round so obviously his his intent was to just like go back home and get his well-deserved rest for that matter you know uh, playing a world championship match is no easy feature so um but kudos to both him and and ding for um abiding by the contracts and um playing in in romania because they could have easily said that okay we'll accept some sort of a fine and then we're not going to play, but you know they decided to to abide by contracts. Actually, I have an interesting, funny story. Funny, not really funny, but um, an occurrence in in the last round against uh, Anish. He actually had to go ba back to his his room to take some uh, some medicine. He was feeling really really bad. So one of the arbiters, I know for a fact, uh, went to the room um, with him, and um, he 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 had to take some medicine. So it was. Um, he wasn't feeling very well, especially towards the end. Energy levels were, were sapped, and um, that was definitely showing in his play. Yeah, uh, but you had a, <laughs> a completely different story. You started off pretty slowly, but at the same time, it didn't feel like you had any problems out of the opening, which were, is always a good sign whenever you uh, um, get whatever you want on the board and you don't have to work too hard for a variety of reasons, that's always a good sign. You preserve some energy, you you show that you're the one dictating matters. So I think um, the first couple of rounds, given that you were getting what you want, um, was a good sign. And then in round three against MVL, that was pristine, really nice prep. Um, somehow MVL wasn't ready for it. How did you feel him? Did you speak with him after the round? A little bit. I wouldn't call it prep. I mean, like, I, I played D4. I was thinking it's 50-50. Either he plays a Grunfeld or he plays a QGA that he played in the tournament. He played against um, Ding in the first round. I know that he likes a QGA these days, so I thought maybe he'll play QGA. Maybe he'll go back to his Grunfeld. He played a Grunfeld. I had H4 prepared. The the Benko that he played was an afterthought. I didn't. I hadn't even decided what I would do. I knew. I mean, before the game, I hadn't decided what I would do if he plays a Benko in this line of the H4 Grunfeld. I decided uh, over the board, I knew that there's two lines. There's either Bishop D2 or I could take the pawn and play a position where I don't know. 
I don't know the concrete moves, but I know the ideas a little bit. Um, and I'll so prep, it's like just so that we we kind of have it in front of us. Um, I mean, this whole prep thing, it's like uh, it's like a meme at this point. Like every time I, I win a game, it's prep. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's uh, there was there was prep for this game. It was just wasn't really for this particular line that he played. But I still know the existence of the line, and I know some ideas. And I mean, I remember his game with white pieces against Spiedler. So people think that that I'm I'm prepared because I remember a game that was played in a tournament where I played in two years ago. Um, <laughs> but that, that wasn't prep. It's just I, I remember the game. Uh, so he also remembers the game. It, it didn't work out for his prep, you know. Uh, yeah. Well, I actually spoke to him after the game, the game. In, in in front in front of us. Uh, move eight a six for black. Yeah, I I think that if you like want to see a model game for you know how to beat the Benko, for example, then that's a really good game. His game against Speedler. Uh, I did speak to him after the game. And he mentioned that he kind of missed that I could take on e7. Like he, he for sure saw that when when he says miss, he for sure saw the possibility. But he probably just thought something vague like, "Oh, uh, I'm I'm attacking." After and knight h5, he, yeah, taking on e7. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he probably had like sort of, um, let's say, vague or not concentrated approach to his calculations at that moment. Yeah, and. Because of course, like you, the first thing you calculate is take only seven. It's uh, so I can I can explain my thought process at this moment because yeah, I I actually had considered the move beforehand, and I thought I take only seven. I calculated something that looked like basically what was in the game, and then he played knight h five, and I was kind of confused. I also thought after knight h five that I probably have another move like queen d two maybe. So I wasn't like concerned by knight h five. Because even if I can't take on e7, it's not a big deal, right? I can I can still play queen d2. Yeah. Um, but then okay, I saw take. Like he has to, he has to play knight f4. There's another idea. I have to play g3. Otherwise, and, you get checkmated. And there's only two. There's three moves I calculated here. So one is knight h3 check, which isn't really concerning because king g2 knight f4 is just a draw. But I can play king f1, and that was. I looked a little bit at some f5, and it didn't seem to be working. For black, so I, I stopped with that calculation. Then I calculated knight fd3, and once I saw rook e3, take on b2, and queen to I thought e2, but computer says queen to b3. Yeah. Um, but queen two is also safe. Then I wasn't worried about that, and the, the move which worried me the most was knight bd3. And I spent a decent amount of time calculating this, and then I saw a knight g5. Pretty quickly, it stops any knight h3 things. <clears throat> I, I I did a recap of this game, right? So yeah, uh, for anyone watching, we'll just that. in we'll the salties of position that. can check that one out. But basically, he probably thought knight f4, knight d3, and some kind of vague uh, like I'm attacking thing, and it's not really working out. And he should have put up more resistance after bishop e7, rook e8, knight d3. Just wasn't yeah, wasn't the way to put up resistance. So. I think he basically felt like he's losing this game and he kind of went through the motions after I took on e7. Yeah, yeah. No, that was uh, once again a very good good start, round three, and immediately followed it up with that game against Nepo that gave you plus two. At that point, you were leading tournament, um, but obviously plus two might or might not be enough to win at the end of the tournament. I think last year it was, I want to say, 
they tied with plus two or plus three, but still very unclear whether that would be enough. And you kind of uh, not necessarily coasted because you actually had some very decent chances even in the later rounds. I think against Firuja, you were doing quite well. Um, had, well, <laughs> had an amazing chance uh, spoiled by your last move. Um, anybody, we will link that recap as well with Knight to C4. That was very unfortunate. Actually, how did you recover from that? Because that's, you know, that's not a pleasant feeling to just know that you're completely winning and then with one move, spoil absolutely everything. Yeah, it, it did... I wasn't happy, but I, I didn't really dwell on it too much. I've, I've messed up bigger things in my life than this. Not, I mean, obviously it's a pretty huge blunder to miss Rook F7, but uh, I missed up more important games than this one. It still felt like an important game, and it was definitely with some luck that it ended up not being an important game, that it actually would not have changed anything for me in the tournament if I had won or not. Uh, yeah, the rest of the games I coasted. I I had this weird... It was a weird tournament because with the black pieces against Duda, against Wesley, and against Richard, I was not really ever in danger. And against Duda, I basically didn't have to make almost a move on my own. I just knew the line very well. Against Wesley, he played a line which is just like positionally equal. It's, there's not much to it. Uh, black has basically a million ways to play, for, to play this and all of them equal and... Uh, Normally speaking, the line is considered a bit too solid for black. White doesn't really enjoy going for this anymore. So it was similar to my other black games, like against Ding uh, as well. I, I was like, there was no fight from in the game. Basically, Ding didn't put me in, under pressure. Duda didn't, Wesley didn't, and only Richard put me in some pressure because he, he did play a challenging line, which, uh, but still it wasn't like serious. I was always in control, I think, in that game. So. I had had a remarkable tournament where I basically, with the black pieces, only played like half a full game, like my game against Richard. I mean, what what else did I play? Like against Wesley, it's not a full game. Against Duda, against Ding. Yeah. Uh, How, yeah doesn't that strange. feel a bit... It, it always feels a bit weird, right? Like you're just playing a few games and then on the other ones, you you know the theory, you equalize with the black pieces, obviously the one against Anish, you had some ridiculous prep, but he was just too good. He he, he defended really well, found the best way. Um, pretty much one of the only forced ways to kind of simplify the position and force a draw. So that was the, the, only, the only one. That was the only, really one. the only one. The only way to, to go for a position where it no longer can be played. So yeah. even if I want to, I can't play it. Ridiculous. It was like we prepared this line really heavily, and sometimes you you put a lot of prep into a game, and then the the result is underwhelming. And in this case, it was very underwhelming. But we really, because Black has a lot of alternatives, not just rookie one, eight, rookie eight h six that he played, but bishop g four at any moment, c six at any moment. Um, it's it's such a rich position, and the chance that he would go specifically for this line. Was seemed really really minimal. It was possible because it's kind of sensible moves that he's making, but I, I didn't expect it. Otherwise, I would have prepared something else. I mean, if I really thought that he's likely to go exactly for this line, uh, because of course I, I actually considered it not a not a must win by any means, but a game where I should be putting pressure on my opponent, should be trying to yeah. win, because I didn't think Ali Reza would lose. 
And in fact, I didn't even think Duda wanted to win that game. He didn't. And uh, did, did you see I'll, the I'll explain why. No, but I, he, I didn't see this. I, I can explain. He said he wanted to make a draw. He wanted. He said he wanted to force a draw, more or less, with White. Yeah. And then Ali Reza just forgot his opening theory, which apparently is uh, opening theory that has been going on for quite a long time, like old school. 2008, yeah, yeah, it's, Kramnik it's very versus Gary, I think, or something like that. Kramnik and yeah. Yeah, it's it's very old school theory uh, in the exchange slab, and black has, black has more than one way, but the cleanest way is rook c8 after queen takes c3. Yeah. Knight to e5. White is trying to convince black to play b to take c6 and, and, make, and change the structure in a way which is in a vacuum, uh, beneficial for white. But then black has this move, knight g4, and this position by force reaches an out-of-color bishop endgame where white is up a pawn, but the chances of winning are basically zero because black has a c-file and uh, the pawn doesn't really ever advance far enough. Yeah. And this was played in a world championship match. Uh, I'm trying to think, was Kremnik white or was Vichy white? But it was definitely Kremnik and not. I think... I think Vichy was playing the Slav, so it must have been Kramnik and on Kramnik with white pieces. And yeah, they made a draw. It's I prepared this the Slav for with the black pieces for the 2020 candidates. I mean, uh, it's like the the most known theory. Yeah. And there's no way that white can avoid it at that point. So two possibilities: either Ali Reza forgot this he line, did. or he, he wanted to win. No, no, no. He forgot. He, he forgot. Yeah. No, I spoke with him in one of the interviews after that, and he did say that he just forgot the line and got himself in trouble. Um, no, he he was very much aware that his position is very dubious, strategically dubious after after this. Um, like his structure is just much worse for a very long time. He got some chances after that, but it, it was he got a lot of chances. He did. He did. Yeah. Yeah. And even he got chances that, like I, I saw Yasser saying. Like, why didn't he play c5? And I, I have to say, I don't understand myself because c5, it's like your only plan. I mean, whether it works or not is another question, but you have to play c5, no? I think at that point, he's like move 39 and he probably expected Duda or at least hoped uh, because also he was um, making his last few moves with a couple of seconds on his clock that um, maybe he would gain some time and then he would have the 41st move. To decide whether he wants to go for c5 but yeah the decision should have been just go for c5 and and hope hope for the best well yeah but c5 the move later just doesn't work with the rook on e2 maybe he missed that the white has both rook e6 and rook d5 yeah uh, I, I was discussing this with uh my second and we were debating which is more accurate rook e6 or rook d5 um obviously like rook e6 is is a very safe way but rook takes d5 is more like mathematically winning. It is, um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, he, he missed a big chance to hold that game. That was really important for me, obviously, because at that point, my task in the last game was simple. Uh, I make a draw, good. If someone catches me, okay, we play a playoff, but still, I have good good uh, equity overall in, in the whole uh, situation. Yeah. Uh, so, and it turns out that, again, a little bit of luck again, that nobody was even close to winning. The people who could have ca caught me were, okay, besides Richie, well, Richie couldn't catch me. He could just overtake me by winning. But the people who could have caught me were Wesley, Anish, 
uh, and, and Ali Reza, all of them with the white pieces. So that's a lot of possible people who could win a game. And Ali Reza playing Maxime was possible, but I thought Maxime would be very, very stable that game. I, I had a feeling. I saw him the night before at dinner, uh, like we were, I was walking the street and, and I saw him having dinner and he looked, he looked confident, he looked calm. And uh, I was worried about Jan because Jan obviously in this tournament was very unpredictable, but he was just out playing Anish at some point and just getting a better position. Yeah. And he Wesley Sicilian also. That, that's not something that I expected. I thought he's just going to go some maybe French, maybe 45, and um, try to play more solid. But he went for the Sicilian four nights, decided to transition into a Zveshnikov, and he was super well prepared. Knew the positions after that. Yeah, um, no problems from Jan. But he was getting a bit worse in his line. Anish played a rare night AB1. Sveshnikov, mm -hmm. I think basically Anish is recommending this for his chessable series on e4, this knight ab1, so he decided to play it himself. And uh, he was getting some he was getting some pressure against Jan for sure, but then he misplayed it and Jan was... Uh, I spoke to Anish a bit about like the game and the details of the lines, but yeah, he was... Um, it could have could have gotten worrying for, for Jan at some point. Yeah, yeah. But... Uh... I mean, these positions are so tricky, yeah? Because the computer will give you some slight advantage. But then if you don't do something with it, the structure is just going to be better for black, right? Which is what we've seen in the game. You have that C3 pawn, which is a forever weakness, and you cannot really get to my D6 pawn. So, yeah. Um, I think probably he was better after this move, rook to B4, rook to B8. At least what the computer is saying. Um, queen d3, queen a7. I think queen d3 was, yeah, I remember watching this live. And once he unfound queen a7, it felt like he's kind of out of out of danger. Oh, queen a7, that was missed by Anish. Yeah, yes. that was, uh, yes, that was the move. Yeah, that was the move that 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 he missed. Yeah, uh, so <laughs> Jan, uh, held, held the fortress, not even. Not even that, but he got a winning position and maybe could have upset Anish. Cool. All right. And well, that allowed you to win it with plus two. No tie breaks needed. Um, nice victory. Nice check. Big, juicy 100k. That's not bad. Um, and uh, and a lot of grand pre-points. So successful trip to Bucharest. Yeah. It was now, very good overall. Now, uh, what's what's next one? Next one is for you, Champions Chess Tour. Yeah, I'm playing Champions Chess Tour. That starts the 22nd. I'm playing in the first match. I'll get the bracket up. I think I remember. But I, I know I'm playing Shimano in the first match. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm playing the winner of my match will play the winner of Abdus Atarov against Musard. Uh, so that was supposed to be Abdus Atarov against Anish, but Anish is playing the uh, Poland GCT event, so so he can't play this. It's at the exact same time, not like just the same day. Because I know some guys from Charger are playing, but the the same like game round times as well. So he definitely it's basically can't play. the same time. Yeah, yeah. Because we were discussing doing some 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 commentary also for for the channel um, of your games, but I I'm going there as well to Poland. I will be doing the commentary um, just like I did in Bucharest. 
And um, I think we were doing some calculations. It's basically like maybe the first round of the Champions Chess Tour starts half an hour before the last round of the day in Poland finishes. Um, so it's, it's a very tight overlap, but there is an overlap. So it's pretty much impossible. Um, yeah. To do it. But uh, yeah, that's it's exciting. Bracket, like, but let's say if I get past my first match, which I don't think is, is easy, but uh, let's say if I do, then I'll play the winner of Absolutarby and Moussard. And the other bracket is Hikaru is playing Jordan Van Forest. That was supposed to be Hikaru against Kirill Shevchenko, I think. But he's playing in Poland. Yeah, he's also playing in Poland. So Hikaru against Jordan, I, I guess Hikaru is like an 80% favorite, but still, that's not a, that's not 100. So um, maybe some people will say 80 is a bit low and it should be higher, but I think Jordan is pretty dangerous. So I would only, and he can be, he can out-prepare Hikaru too. So I would only say 80. I wouldn't say more than that. And then Ali Reza against Kolar is, I think, probably higher than 80 for Ali Reza. Really? Because I... I yeah, I'd like the thing is Jordan. Jordan has beaten top players before, so he'll have that confidence that on a good day he can beat Hikaru in a match. Um, Kolar's, I don't. I think this is all new to him. I don't think that he'll be ready for Ali Reza. So I would predict that they both win, but uh, I would even predict more heavily that Ali Reza wins, and then we see a Hikaru Ali Reza match in the um, in the quarterfinals. That's no, it's a, well, it's a, the semifinals of the winner's bracket or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, it's a double elimination tournament. So the champions and bracket. It should be interesting. I, you know, I, I, I'm glad to be back in the Division One, um, thanks to getting second place in Division One last time. So I, I was lucky that I'm playing directly seeded in Division One again. Yeah. It's. <coughs> It's a bit of a softer field than last time. You don't have Magnus, who's playing in Poland. So that's a big miss. Um, yeah, no Magnus, no Wesley. No, no Anish. Anish was supposed to play as well. Yeah. Wesley, Levon. Yeah, no, he's definitely softer. Still, Hikaru, Perugia, uh, Abdusitaro are the three, um, like, three very tough guys. So that's good. You gotta make it in yeah, top three uh, at least to qualify for the next, um, the next tournament's um, division one. So that's always a good goal to have. I think obviously winning it would be sweet, but if you make it top three, then you have guaranteed division one next tournament, which is a very yeah. I have nice to make sure that the, I have to make sure my schedule lines up because you never know. There's so many tournaments that could always overlap. I can miss one, but hopefully I don't. Uh, miss an event because I, I would like to qualify for the final and right now in, in points I'm doing well but you never know right well there's one way to, to, to qualify for the finals you have to win one of these things so, yeah yeah yeah, yeah. You, you can you could either win but uh, get it done if not that <laughs> then if you don't win I, my best chance to win was last time and hopefully I'll have another chance but it's it's never a guarantee uh but the standings right now, like on points, are I'm effectively first in points because Hikaru and Magnus qualify through different means. So, like I'm, I have 150 points. Wesley has 105 points, and after that, Arjun has 56 points. So it's 
uh, and Levon has 50. And neither of them are playing this time, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Noderbeck has 50, and he's playing, so that's that could be um, that could always be a competition. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, definitely uh, a good one. I'm going to Poland. Uh, that's going to be the next stop of the Grand Chess Tour. I'm excited about that. Magnus is going to be playing. Um, he plays the rapid events during the Grand Chess. Well, not St. Louis Rapid and Blitz, but uh, the European ones, Poland and Croatia. So that's always exciting. Uh, have Magnus uh, around. Actually, for the first time, uh, I will be interviewing him. I have never interviewed Magnus, so it's a new, uh, new experience. We'll see how, how he takes on that. I've uh, been his rival, more or less. You know, his team's rival. So we know each other from that perspective, but we never interacted from an interviewer interviewee. Uh, type of situation so that should be interesting and i know he has precedent <laughs> you know take it pretty hard on 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 interviewers so i'm excited about that should be should be fun i remember the time when he he went after boris you you know that <laughs> you remember that. yeah I, I was there, I there. <laughs> the fun uh... you know maurice is actually going to be in norway i've heard yeah he he texted me he texted me that uh, he heard from you that I would be in Norway. And I was like, yeah, well, what is he doing there? Do you know? He's, he's an honored guest. Um, honored guest. Okay, so he's not doing yeah. commentary. Hmm. No. Interesting. Um, interesting, interesting. You know, that, I that's... Haven't seen him in, I haven't seen him since the Sinkfield Cup. Like, oh, no, here. the US Championship. US We've seen him at the US Champs. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we yeah, had yeah. dinner with him. He was, he was there. It's always good to see Maurice. You know, he doesn't, we don't see him as regularly because he's not doing the commentary anymore, but it's good to see him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's definitely going to be interesting. He's uh, he's probably going to be at my wedding, at least as of right now. He he accepted the invitation, so uh, we'll have him there. Yeah, and I and, hopefully and, will not. And make hopefully, it. I won't have you there. Yes. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're playing the 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 World Cup. Um. Cool. 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 All right. Enough of super bad and future events. We do have some uh, some stuff happening in the chess world. We have another, <laughs> yeah, you guessed it, cheating scandal. Um, and you've mentioned it on your Facebook as well. Basically, Bobby Hess came out swinging against the FIDE and the hybrid events. There is an article on chess.com. Hess asks FIDE to address suspicious rating games in hybrid events. So basically there's this hybrid, which means that you play from a certain location uh, with a proctor next to you, but the games are being played online. And there's been a, you know, that's an invention from the COVID pandemic era. And it kind of became an established thing. Some people play it, some people well, some people gain a lot of rating um, and um, it kind of uh, drew the eyes of, 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 of Bobby. And you know Bobby very well. You've uh, tweeted about this as well. Tell us a bit about what's happening there. Yeah, so I, I okay, these hybrid events were put in place before COVID a little bit, but then especially during COVID, they became uh, sort of like a a more regular thing, I guess. But I, I remember playing the Fisher Random World Championship, and it was hybrid. It was with the live Proctor, you know, um, and that was in 2019. And there was also, I think, the qualification for the World Cup 
uh, I guess that was for the 2021 World Cup, I think, uh, and that was hybrid. And there was some, you know, suspected cheating maybe. You never know, right, with these hybrid events because the arbiter, if the arbiter is not uh, honest, and that's possible, or if the arbiter is incompetent, then you could have someone arranging computer cheating. Uh, but the other, the other bigger issue was brought up by Robert. And this is something I heard of very casually at some point. I forget when, but people were making jokes about like Bulgarian players. And I didn't really understand what that was about. And I didn't really pay attention to it. But then I heard more recently before, before Robert came out with this, that about these hybrid events and that some players in the U.S. were gaining hundreds of rating points in a single list or even a single event. Uh, and obviously no reason to name any names of those players, but uh, but the tournaments were suspicious. They were playing players from one country in these hybrid events, winning all the games. And uh, I, I don't I didn't check the the moves, right? So I don't know, um, let's say how the games look from a, let's say human point of view, but the results itself are just they don't make any sense. Yeah, you know, you see these players, they gain like uh, 150 points in one event, then they play a real over the board event, they lose 50 points. Um, they they well, seesaw between real events and these hybrid events that uh, where they win all their games. And yeah, it's, Chris, all, Chris it's always Bird between players put some, a certain some, country some stuff uh, out. And basically, it's pretty damning. Um, basically, the matches between the US and Serbia and you can see how many rating points the U.S. is winning pretty much every single time they play. Like 57 uh, gain, 61 gain, 14, 8, 27, and Serbia is just basically losing. So, yeah, um, a lot of speculation about these tournaments. Obviously, there is no physical proof, but this looks pretty damning. Um, so it, so the thing is, great. so after... Um... At some point, it, Robert got in touch with USCF, and I think he's also like one of the heads of the players committee. So it's uh, it's also a, like something that he's he has an official position to to be able to deal with these things. So he got in touch with the USCF, and he told them about this, and they decided not to register hybrid events with FIDE. Mm -hmm. But then these hybrid events, since they couldn't register them with the USCF. They decided um, to register them with foreign federations. So you were having these events, which are hybrid, which were with U.S. players and foreign players registered with foreign federations. It was all very uh, sketchy, to, to put it mildly. So it doesn't count for USCF ratings, but they found a loophole to um, even for U.S. players to be able to count them for feeder ratings. Yeah, and uh, the thing is that this will very likely lead to um to some sort of players qualifying for either oh, yeah. the US championship or the national team or yeah the olympiad you yeah, know that's big i mean selection in the olympic team that's huge on the resume of pretty much every single player uh, being able to play the US championship or like US women's championship that's another crazy thing and also Basically, just being able to say, okay, I'm the youngest, let's say, uh, 2300. I'm the youngest uh, FIDE master. I'm the youngest uh, 2500. Things of that nature can definitely make yeah. an impact on scholarship, um, on future scholarship, on, on, on future, you know, resume uh, implications. So 
it's it's pretty significant. Yeah, again, not not to name names, but there are players who will qualify definitely for the U.S. Championship, maybe even for the Olympic team, which is obviously a higher threshold for rating that you need. And and it's not entirely clear if their ratings are if their ratings reflect their strength. Uh, so, you know, these things adjust themselves over time, but they can lead to um, temporarily some players losing out, some players gaining out on invitations. And like the U.S. Championship, for example, has a lot of money, so it certainly carries some consequence. And at the end of the article, it's um, the CEO of FIDE, Emil Sitovsky, says, looks more than suspicious. Indeed, we will look at it closely and take a prompt action. I'm not 100% sure what prompt action means, um, but this is not a one-game cheating allegation. This is increasing your rating by hundreds of points type of allegation, um, which is damning if proven correctly, should probably be followed by by swift action and, and consequences for everybody involved. So yeah, this is not good. This is not a I mean, I, I don't know if that they should like have any consequences because it's for the you organizers, can, at least. I, I I don't know about the players. The players might or might not have known, but if this is proven correctly, and the the organizers or like the 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 people that are losing points on purpose, I mean that's yeah, th there should be some serious consequences. I mean, that. we understand that the, these events happen over the board where there's where you can buy games from people. Definitely, these happen. Uh, definitely, some players have taken advantage and gotten titles this way gotten rating this way but i think they should just not rate hybrid events at all yeah there that's it's it's too it's too risky there's also the potential for cheating you you don't really know if someone could be you know like i i i don't know if i always would trust arbiters and i wouldn't trust hybrid events um like i trust arbiters to enforce anti-cheating measures or so I, I think it's better if these things just disappear at least for now yeah, yeah, no, I agree. I think that's the one actionable uh, decision that could be taken. Just eliminate them. I mean, that's a pandemic type of thing. I, I think, you know, and probably they had their place when COVID first started and everybody was sitting at home. And I think we've even had some European championship or European hybrid championship in which some decent players played. Um, we played the Romanian championship online. So it, it had its place at that moment. It, it definitely doesn't right now. It's just, um, yeah, we're, we're, we're basically back to normal. Let's just get back to normal play that gets, you know, rated. Yeah. Cool. That's, I think it's a pretty straightforward sort of thing. I mean, definitely these events are too suspicious to be counted. Um, yeah, but I, I wouldn't like go start going after people, you know, because you don't you don't well, really know, right? If the players knew, if they didn't know. The players, uh, so, yeah, sure. I mean, but there there should be some some uh, investigation, I think. Um, oh yeah, I think I think in general events which are suspicious should be investigated, uh, and and they can definitely happen at all levels, not just at the uh, level that people need, you know need a Twitter post to notice them, right? Yeah. Uh, 
So, I mean, I said this like I, I basically the technique is not um, as good as it used to be. retweeted what Robert said, and I said that organizing bodies, meaning in this case FIDE and USCF, should uh, prevent against any possibility of uh, like improper tournaments or of cheating, because people will take advantage if they if they're given the opportunity, and especially with like arranged tournaments, I think that is a big one. Uh, and it's better not that we don't close our eyes when we see these things happen. Um, but the tendency sometimes is to that the, the public closes their eyes to it. All right, on a lighter note, uh, we have uh, Hikaru bashing 25, 2600 players. I don't know if you've watched this uh, this video, but basically he covered no, this thing called the disrespect speed run, where he just uh, talks trash about pretty much everybody. And uh, he had a funny one recently where he he said that 25, 2600 rated players, which includes me, so I feel directly attacked. Um, their technique is at best sketchy i think he says but let's listen to him days like anybody who's over 27 2700 obviously is a, is a is a boss but i feel like when you play 25 wait let me just make sure that there we go we have it 50 2600 level players i mean i'm talking classical chess of course you guys uh, i feel like their their technique is sketchy at best <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to understand what does Hikaru mean by 25 2600 rated players technique being sketchy like maybe you can okay like what's what, what do you feel is sketchy about as an elite level player yourself what do you feel it's sketchy about the technique of a 25 2600 level player uh, well, 25 and 2600 is such a big difference to start with. But yeah, I think. Uh, I think it's mostly like, between 25 to 2600, low 2600s. Yeah, but still, low 2500 and low 2600 can be a very big difference. Uh, okay, but the thing is, for Hikaru, um, these players are like they make mistakes. That being said, you know, I, I did see the World Championship match. I don't know. I don't know anymore. Um, <laughs> yeah. technique there was also a little bit sketchy, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, normally speaking for, let's say a player of Hikaru's caliber, um, he can basically do what he wants with these guys. And yeah, you, you can mess like if you're, if you're 27, 50 plus, you can kind of mess around with, with the 2600. Um, you can get away with a lot. Let's say you can get a very bad position. Uh, very often it's good to get a bad position because then you give them the ambition. The hardest thing to do is when a lot of these guys are super, super well prepared and they can try to shut the game down. But you give them a good position, they start to get ambitious and if you do risk losing a bit, but very often uh, it all turns around. And he's also probably talking about speed chess and especially in speed chess, uh, like he can get away with so many things. I mean, he can get away with things against me, against Magnus even. But the things he can get away with against a 2600 or a 2500 is just um, kind of, that, you know, that being said, okay, there was a pro chess league 
we do sometimes get punished by players who are 2600. Uh, he was even getting punished almost by Alice Lee, right? Uh, yeah. So it's not it's not always the case, but we see his title Tuesday results. We know that he can sometimes from completely dead loss position. I'm watching his games. I'm like, uh, oh my god, I, I know what's going to happen, and I see that it's winning in like 50 different ways. But I, I see I see it coming that the guy is going to mess up, and not only mess up to a draw, but also lose the game. So that's what that's what Icar was referring to. Yeah, I, f- I I feel somewhat personally attacked, but not really because I know exactly what he's talking about. It's just um, and as you mentioned, even if you give 25, 2600 level players good positions, at some point there's a specific moment when you get low on time, uh, when your opponent, especially if it's Icaro, probably has like much more time than than you do, and even if the position is perfect, your decision making is still not optimal, and you lose control of the position. I think this is what. Um, he means it, it's it's about that moment when you lose control of the position and then things go sideways in general very very quickly um i would say give a technical end game to 25 2600s and they will have uh, much higher chances of punishing this um hikaru level players uh but uh yeah give them a better position plus one one and a half plus two even uh, but with a lot of pieces and, and a lot of decisions ahead, and especially with low, low time controls, very often they will mess it up. Um, I know, you know the feeling actually, is not pleasant. <laughs> on that note, you know what I consider like usually a very strong indication of cheating? Like for me, a red flag is clean technique. Because it's it's very possible to get a winning position for many, many players, for even players who are, you know, let's say 500 points lower than Hikaru uh, to get a winning position against him. But I know from experience, every player does, how difficult it is to win a game. Sometimes you win it cleanly, but from from my own experience, and, and I don't think my technique is bad, um, It usually you allow chances. Sometimes the chances don't work out. Sometimes your opponent misses the chances. But usually, even like, for example, dude against Perugia, in a classical game, he's still allowing C5 as a chance near the there's very end. Always in a something. Always. There's always something that players miss. So when some guy online with seconds on his clock is cleanly mopping up, uh, that is a huge red flag for me. Yep. It's it's more yep. of a red flag than outplaying me. It's like the technique and being able to to cleanly convert without allowing counter... Like, this is the, the ultimate red flag. I remember this when um, Petrosian uh, was... Was caught right, Peter and Pampers, yeah. And so immediately after the game, I, I had this feeling. So I, like Rustam was there, and immediately after the game, I was like, "This was a weird game. I feel really bad about this game." I get to Rustam, and he was like, "No, no, no. You were better at this moment, and this and that and that." And then I was like, "Okay, yeah, you're right. I was better here." And it turned out that he was right. Uh, he was cheating. And yeah. for me, the what really set it off was the fact that once he was better. I had zero chance. It was just clinical, like perfect accuracy conversion. And I, I didn't even feel like I had a chance. I felt like I was getting strangled. So you don't feel that way against a human. Like you feel like you have chances. You feel the nervousness in their moves. Uh, you feel them get into time trouble. And like at some point, it's not even like, let's say maybe they even converted without allowing you many chances, but you still feel tension there. And so that's one of the signs. That's something that, um, and I I have 
I am like, I'm not trying to boast with this, but I have a very, very good track record with uh, people I thought were cheating. Like I, I sometimes play anonymously on chess, anonymously on chess.com and I play against guys who are, um, let's say they, they might be titled, they might be GMs, I might know them, but sometimes I don't know them and sometimes they're not titled and sometimes they beat me. And whenever I have a feeling, a few days later I get a message that we've detected one of your opponents has uh, has been caught, blah, blah, blah. And you you get your your rating points refunded. Like every single time I have this feeling, it gets confirmed a few days later. Um, <laughs> yeah. Th this is not, obviously, it's kind of strange, rather far from the subject, but just uh, that's one of the kind of red flags, let's say. And actually, it reminds me of uh, something Anish mentioned during one of our interviews when we were looking at Ali Reza's game, especially with uh, Duda, he was in a much worse position. And Anish made the point that Ali Reza plays a brand of chess that generally applies very well to the understanding of humans, not necessarily of computers. Like his objective, uh, not level, but uh, um, strength of moves is not as high. Like an engine will be able to punish him very severely. But humans in general, they see the point of his moves. They see what, and I think that I'm quoting Anish uh, more or less right now, they see what he's selling, um, the type of moves that he makes, the type of ideas, humans see them. And even if they're flawed, even if they're bad, they're still going to buy um, his perspective, what he's selling. Him, he, This is how he framed it. So, Are they, are they also buying his Ali Reza Fruja fashion line? I, I'm not. Yeah. Well, I don't think he has one yet. But you know, maybe, maybe at some point somebody. No. Seriously, I, I do agree with Anish. Like Ali Reza has a very human approach to the game. It's good. It's a good sign. Um, he's he's far from robotic in terms of how he approaches chess. Oh yeah. I mean. That sometimes leads to, like, what you would call objective, not objective chess or like mistakes. But you can take any player. Uh, I don't care how objectively strong they play they're going to lose to a computer that doesn't like you're trying to play against humans so um so ali reza he does that well he's he's uh he's practical he i think he understands that in general you get chances and people make mistakes and he's ready to capitalize on that so that's one of his strengths i've also noticed that he he does always go for a fight like he's a very fighting player you can feel that yeah, in a way that some players not always are. Um, that also, I think, is a factor of age. Like, uh, you know, when I was young, I, I I played, like, to put it kindly, bullshit. I mean, even if I was 20, uh, like, let's say 2012, I was 27, 80 or so. And my games were, were, if you look at it on the surface, like right now I play much, much higher quality chess. But somehow my rating is about the same. Even though we can maybe talk about rating inflation, but still, I was I was top like five, three to five in the world, playing with no openings, uh, with horrendous amounts of mistakes, but you know, with fighting spirit and, and understanding that people mess up games and that you can capitalize on that if you're ready, that takes you really far. And that's what I was uh, probably better at if we're going back ten years ago than than I am now. Even though now I am let's say objectively a better player, like I understand chess better and, and so on. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a quality. It's, it's not tangible. You can't really, you can't see it from a computer evaluation, uh, but 
yeah. you can feel when you're really into chess, when you play against Ali Reza or against players who have a different style from Ali Reza, you can feel the difference and you can you can see that it's not there's nothing worse in his approach. It, maybe it's not better, but uh, but it's his individual style. It works for him. He gets fights. He sometimes uh, like his opening choices. I'll, I'll point to this, for example. He likes to play, uh, for example, the Italian or some kind of closed Spanish type structures. And the reason for that is because it's it doesn't simplify. It's a fighting opening. People might look at the Berlin with D3 and think, oh, this is boring, right? If they're, uh, let's say the, the general public looks at D3 Berlin. But for, for a chess player who wants to fight, this is one of the most interesting openings. The Italian, uh, in which you have stro- slow maneuvering play, uh, that's what some some chess fans might struggle to understand is that the fi- the fireworks that you that you think you're excited for they almost always lead to to a draw and simplifications like you're not going to get what you want out of fireworks if you want exciting games what you the, what you want to see is the Italian um, like these slow maneuvering positions we see it for example Ali Reza against Ding some kind of boring position but eventually it explodes. Yeah, we yep. see it. Uh, Nepo that's, against that's Ding. That's a great example. Uh, boring and position. In, in that one, Ding was in fact winning, right? Uh, but he was objectively winning with one specific move. He made the wrong knight jump. Like basically, he could get the knight from D to E4 or the knight from F to E4. One of them was winning objectively, plus three, plus four, whatever. The other one was blowing the advantage. In fact, it was giving the advantage to White, and he just made the wrong knight jump. That's a perfect example of the way Ali Reza plays and, and his style and how it uh, meshes so well with human chess. Yeah, this moment from the game, knight fe4 versus knight de4, I was like talking to Anish and we were trying to understand Ding's thought process because there's always a thought process behind it. And we kind of couldn't understand it. Like... Sometimes you 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 make mistakes, but still there's there's a lot of reasoning behind it. There's there's logic there. Um, I we we couldn't really understand the move, and then finally I came up with some sort of explanation, but it didn't sound very convincing. Hmm. What and, was uh, it? I have uh, the position in front of us actually. Okay, so let's uh, let's get his game up here. Yeah, knight d4 was the move. Knight d4 was the move. You can see that it says this engine says like minus. 0.89 it was much worse than that uh, i think objectively this is something along the lines of minus four right now yeah. minus okay three, so the first four. the first thing is that knight d4 why did he reject this this one is easy to explain he saw some kind of knight f7 rook d1 rook d1 he didn't really see knight f2 and queen e4 ideas he saw bishop h6 vaguely look dangerous whatever and he thought he rejected it not based on some deep calculation but more like i don't want to allow knight takes f7 stuff yeah but then the question is, why don't you play rook to f8? And I don't think there's a reason not to play rook f8. But Ding wanted to release attention. Yes. Because he was probably tired or didn't want to handle the stress of the position. It's obviously a stressful position, right? A lot of possible captures, a lot of possible tactics. Yeah. So knight fe4 fulfills that criteria. But of course, when you play knight fe4, the only thing you calculate is bishop d6. Knight d6 is forced. And then you take something on f7. So the first part of my theory was he calculated this. Knight takes f7, mm-hmm. uh, knight f7, rook f7, queen f7, bishop f7, rook takes d1. And 
he calculated bishop takes e8, rook d2, bishop b5. And he was happy with the draw. So he was actually going for a draw for this. Yeah. And the question is, why did he, what about queen takes d1 in this position after, after rook takes d1? Because obviously nobody wants to play king f7, right? That would be the game continuation. Yeah. And uh, it's clear that white is better, so you're not getting your draw there. Uh, here he actually has a draw with e2, queen d7, e1 queen, and bishop takes e8 and king h6. But did he actually calculate that this position is a draw? Because he's he's kind of fighting for it. But it is. So let's just say he that some he queen g1, kind of queen saw that and he wants to draw there. Yeah, I mean, the, the white king is pretty weak as well. You, you have, you're a pawn up, but I'm going to get to your king and I'm probably going to force the exchange of the queens. So, so my theory was that he saw all this and the move bishop takes f7 that Ali Reza played. And we see the game continuation that after queen takes d1, he thought e2 would be good for black. So he thought that white couldn't even go for this. Yeah. And then he missed that after queen d7, e1, queen. That now it's a different story because knight to e5. And your king actually gets made if king h6, knight g7, or queen to e7, cover that check. King h6, knight g4, king h5, knight f6, and queen h7, checkmate. And so then he realized, okay, he has to take on f7. Queen e2 happened. At this moment, he realized he has to play a difficult position where black may may or may not draw. Yeah. Then he played a completely inconceivable move. Like nobody understood this move. You just leave g6 hanging. King e7. Even Ali Reza was like, what the hell is this? What the hell is King e7? Where are you going? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. And then he lost. Yeah. But still, there's like so many holes in this thought process that I'm not even sure my that my explanation is convincing. It's just the best I could come up with. That That's the best. Like, it still makes no sense because you can play Rook F8 instead of Knight F4. I mean, like, White doesn't actually have concrete threats here. Yeah. So that's the best I could come up with. I told it to Anish, and he was skeptical, but uh, I can't think of anything else why you would play Knight F4. Yeah, yeah, cool. All right. Um, Fabi, I mean, that's that covers most of the things that have been happening in the last uh, couple of weeks in the world of chess. Lots of tournaments, lots of tournaments coming up, in fact. Champions Chess Tour, Norway Chess, um, the Grand Chess Tour. The Poland stop of the Grand Chess Tour, that's exciting as well. On uh, a, a different note and uh, a much more difficult note, uh, there was a tragedy in, in, in the world of chess. Um, Sue Mararoa Jones, um, the wife of uh, Gawain Jones and a very strong player herself as well, has uh, tragically passed not long time ago. Um, a couple of, I think a week and a half ago or so, um, big tragedy for the chess community, for, uh, Gawain Jones and his family. She lives behind, um, two kids. And, um, right now there's a GoFundMe campaign that, um, we want to, to, to point out to and, um, ask for your help, the chess community's help to, uh, support it. If you want, um, I will leave the link to that. GoFundMe campaign in in the description below, so you can check that out. But yes, just um, a big tragedy. I know Gawain. I've met him. Uh, sweet guy. Just 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 an incredible guy. Um, I've never heard anything bad about him. He's he's just uh, and over the chessboard, he's a fighter as well. It, it's it's just a non-speakable tragedy, and we just wanted to highlight this uh, this way the chess community can can help.
so yeah, yeah it's uh it's really really tragic um she was very young she was she was 32 years old um she had uh just had her her child uh their child and yeah. she was um one of the best players from uh from new zealand i think um and also probably also from england uh, and, and yeah it's uh it's a real tragedy yeah yeah so go check it out if it speaks to you um support it and share it with your friends as well let's uh let's uh let's come together as a chess community and and help in this very very difficult moment cool all right well fabi uh that was fun i mean we've we haven't done one of these in in a long time so it's 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 good to get back on the podcast uh route um i'll i'll see you next week most likely we'll chat i'll give you the insights from from poland you'll give me the insights from the champions chess tour we'll reconnect then and uh, i'm sure we'll have some some more content coming out your way don't forget guys to support the easiest way to support is to just uh, subscribe to the channel like you know uh, the good stuff for uh, the algorithm give us your comments leave us uh, your comments in uh in the comment section tell us uh what you thought about fabi's performance about the upcoming tournaments discuss and uh yeah engage what else are we missing anything fabi no i, I think we covered everything cool all right until next week guys cheers <laughs>